1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
2: Big, big earnings week this week. Uh, We've got Amazon Molly after the close Thursday. So I think it's time to get a preview of what we might see from uh, Amazon. And when you talk about Amazon these days, it's both a retail story, e and a tech story. With, I like with that. Its cl- yeah, with its cloud. So what do you do? How do you get an expert on both? Well, you go to Bloomberg Intelligence. Because we have Poonam Goyal, she's a Bloomberg Intelligence senior analyst for e-commerce and all that retail stuff. She joins us here, as does Anna Rana, senior analyst on a tech side for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Poonam, let's start with you here. Uh, I'm gonna go back to the roots of Amazon as a retail story here. What do you expect to see and hear from Amazon this quarter about their, their that core retail biz?
3: I think the retail business will be very strong for the fourth quarter. We already saw it in some of the industry numbers that were reported back in November and December with really strong online sales, especially in November, and that momentum kind of continuing into December. So from the retail side, we expect Amazon to report a much stronger 4Q, and that will still be driven, Paul, by the third party. A marketplace. So, you know, Amazon's business is one P and third party where they sell stuff on their own and then they have sellers sell on the platform. We think uh, the third party business will continue to outpace first party, but both will have strong growth rates.
4: Right, And that's just, you know, uh, that's just one piece of Amazon's business. I mean, granted, a big piece, but just one of them. So Anurag, why don't you tell us a bit about the Amazon Web Service component and um, what that is going what you're expecting out of that?
5: Yeah, thank you. So, you know, AWS is the biggest uh, cloud infrastructure vendor out there, and what we have seen over the last two years, it has been a bit of slowdown in the growth rates of AWS. And the reason for that is it's a variable pricing model. You know, you pay what you use, and in this economic downturn in the last, I would say, one and a half to two years, companies are dialing back on their cloud usage. It's one way for them to control their cost. So that doesn't mean that they are not embracing cloud at the same pace. They're not just using as much. But we think that takes a U-turn either in this quarter or the next quarter. Uh, we are fairly optimistic based on a survey we did. We think you know, we are coming to a point with easy comparisons. So we are, we are fairly optimistic that over the next 12 months, we'll see a rebound in growth rates for AWS and, and by default for, for Microsoft also.
2: So, Anurag, what's the... I mean, if I'm Amazon Amazon Web Services, how do I position myself in this AI discussion here? I mean, if I'm the IR person, what am I telling my executives to say when I get on these, this conference call?
5: You know, one of the most important things, I think the message they have been telling people is, you know, you don't really need just open AI to go out and build your um, AI, uh, you could say, strategy. They work with a lot of open source uh, companies or um, AI vendors that have the large language models. They work with Meta, for example, they they really promote a lot of Meta's large language model. So if I'm a company, you can go out and choose whichever raw material you want, whichever um, uh, you know large language model that you want, but you can host that on AWS, and that's how they're going to make money, is by bu- giving the building blocks of AI to companies.
4: So Poonam, let's come back to the retail side of it. Obviously the big news with Amazon today, the termination of the 1.4 billion dollar deal uh with iRobot uh gonna say again pretty sure Amazon's gonna be okay <laughs> um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about like the you know is this really material for them that this deal didn't go through and uh, of course you know this we, we just keep hammering it time and time again this M&A outlook it's really tough
3: Yeah, you know, we talked about this a little earlier, and it's not material to Amazon. Just looking at the size of it, right? A billion dollars, a little more than a billion dollars on Amazon's scale of over $600 billion in GMV. It doesn't move the needle at all. But that said, it just reinforces our view that we've had for a long time that acquisitions for these companies will be more difficult given the scrutiny that they're under. So we do think that organic growth is what Amazon is going to have to focus on. And we think there's plenty of it on the retail side, on the advertising side, and on the cloud side.
2: Just a little redhead crossing the Bloomberg terminal I'll bring to your attention, Renault, to cancel Ampere IPO. So not good news for the IPO market, we'll get some reporting on that coming up. Uh, And Poonam, with the e-commerce side of Amazon, what's your sense, you know, talking to the Amazons of the world, the Walmarts of the world, how's the consumer these days, and how's the spending out there?
3: The spending is pretty good, surprisingly. You know, we've been talking about the consumer possibly falling off and really slowing down their spend, but we haven't seen it. The holiday numbers suggest the spending is strong. I'd still say though, I think people are picking and choosing where they spend. They're deciding where they want to spend their dollars and Amazon has been a place where they're more likely to spend it given the fact that they get speed, convenience and really everything that they want from there. But that said, I do think that on the low end, you could see some issues arise as inflation and other concerns really do hamper their spending power.
4: So Anurag, uh, Poonam was just saying how the the growth story for Amazon is really going to come more from organic growth rather than acquiring it. So tell us about on the cloud side if you see a lot of um, organic growth opportunities coming from that business.
5: Yeah, no, we, we expect actually growth to pick up. We think the growth is closer, going to be closer to 20% by the end of this year. Um, you know, this is a market that has a long, long, uh, I would say, runway. Uh, overall, cloud spending is still less than 20% of total tech spending, somewhere in that 20 to 25% range. Um, I, I think we have a long way to go and Amazon is right in the middle of it. Um, they are the biggest cloud infrastructure vendor, as I said, with over 40% of the market share. So so I feel fa- fairly optimistic that this year we're going to see a rebound.
2: So in the cloud infrastructure side of it, who do they compete against? And is that 40% market share something that they have to defend? Is that something they can grow? How's the competitive landscape look in the infrastructure space?
5: Yeah, even in five years, if they are able to maintain it, I'll be very happy with that because what has happened is, you know, Microsoft has really gone out big over the last, you know, seven, eight, ten years, and it is now the second biggest vendor. Now, surprisingly enough, this is a space where the smaller vendors cannot really make a dent because you need a lot of capital expenditures to come up with a cloud model you or infrastructure business. You just can't do it in your garage. You really need billions of dollars of data centers in order to um, you know, really be good at this business. So right now, there are two big uh, vendors, it's AWS and it's Microsoft Azure, and then after that we have Google and you know, the likes of Oracle and IBM after that.
4: So last one here for you, Poon. I'm just quick on the 30 seconds, looking at pharmacy and grocery for Amazon, what are the next developments there?
3: There's a long way to go there. We think they're still in very early innings, and it's a harder market for them to crack. With grocery, they're trying to build out their fresh business, but we really haven't seen that much progress there. And on pharmacy, they're still very, very early on. So those are businesses that we haven't even factored into our growth scenario for Amazon.
2: Mm, Wow, yeah, that seems like a tough nut for them to crack and for a lot of people. Uh, All right, Poonam Goyal, Anurag Rana, two of our best analysts at Bloomberg Intelligence, also, absolutely, our, some of our very first folks we brought on board to Bloomberg Intelligence many moons ago. Uh, but they cover, give us a little preview there of Amazon uh, because it is the giant retailer and it is a significant player in the cloud business. So you got to bring the two expert areas together, which we can do at Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can find Putnam's and Anurag's research as well as the other 400 analysts at Bloomberg Intelligence. B I Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. Best research on the street. <laughs>
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Big, big news several weeks ago in the crypto space because we finally, they finally got approval from the SEC for a spot. uh, Bitcoin ETF, and that was huge for the crypto space and big, big news for the ETF space as well. So let's dig in, see how things are progressing there. Austin rejoins us. He's global head of revenue and business at Falcon X. What is Falcon X, you ask? The largest institutional crypto prime brokerage in the world. Austin, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, where are you based? Where is uh, Falcon X? Yeah, first
6: of all, thank you guys for having me. So excited for the conversation. Uh, I'm actually based in San Francisco, but our team is spread globally. We have an office uh, in Silicon Valley, New York, Chicago, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and London. So So a little bit of everywhere.
2: Who trades on your platform and what do they trade?
6: Yeah, so we trade with a wide variety of institutional market participants. That's everyone from today and topically ETF issuers who are active within the cryptocurrency space to hedge funds, asset managers, venture capital firms, Really, anyone that's looking to access liquidity on the spot markets or in the derivatives side of the cryptocurrency space, our options business has seen substantial growth uh, over the past couple of quarters as well. So, basically, if you're looking to get access to the asset class, hedge your exposure either in spot or derivatives markets, we work with a lot of those market participants.
4: Yeah, tell us, how, Austin, like why that recent news from the SEC regarding Bitcoin ETFs was so important, and what's that? What that's meant for your business? Yeah,
6: for sure. Look. I think if you look at what the ETF means in the mid to long term, really, the unlock with the ETF is net new pools of capital that historically haven't had access to the cryptocurrency or digital asset market, specifically RIAs and financial advisors within the US. So $30 trillion markets, roughly 40% of uh, US capital markets. And within that, they haven't had an instrument to access this asset class yet. And so the thought is the ETF provides a regulated instrument through which these uh, different market participants can get access, and that will increase overall adoption over time. So in relation to our business there, where we service, we're a spot liquidity provider to a number of the ETF issuers. Within that, we've partnered, uh, we've partnered to provide liquidity, and we did about 30% of the day one issuances uh, from a trading perspective itself.
2: Interesting. Oh, okay. Very good ask. I wanted to know, like, how has that impacted your business? So you yeah. saw it day one. We saw day one. Look, this okay. is
6: something we've been preparing for for years at this okay. point, right? In terms of building out the liquidity at scale, ability to transact significant size within this market. And so we've been working with different issuers, larger asset managers, that they've been preparing their crypto strategies. Um, and I think day one saw a significant amount of flows. And we continue to basically see consistent trading activity from those issuers. All
2: right. So just for our listeners and for me, you're a prime brokerage. You're not an exchange like FTX. Correct. Correct. Now you trade. You traded on FTX at some point, presumably. Yeah. Correct.
6: Right? So we're a prime brokerage. Right. What that means is we aggregate liquidity from a number of different liquidity pools globally. Exchanges, proprietary trading firms, market makers. And so we trade with all major venues around the world, depending on the structure, where the client is in, some, uh, in the regulatory jurisdiction. And our goal is to basically provide our clients the most seamless trading experience possible and an aggregation of that global liquidity within gotcha. the market. Yeah.
4: And your clients, you said, are mostly institutional money?
6: Correct. All institutions. Okay.
4: Money okay. So on. tell me then about like where the you know retail... Um, Bitcoin traders stands right now and like their access to ETFs.
6: Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting question. Right. And I think with the initial ETF rollout, the perspective would be that this would give broader access to the retail side of the market, as well as segments of the institutional side of the market. What I would say is we're still early in this ETF cycle, though, right? It was approved earlier this month. And within that, you're still seeing some platforms not actually allow their end clients to trade this asset, right? Vanguard is an example, $7 trillion of assets uh, that... are invested there. You're not seeing them basically allow access to Bitcoin ETF vehicles. You've seen some of the other brokerages still working through that cycle. And so from a retail investor perspective, it should open up access. But I think it's also a uh, longer term cycle uh, as to, uh, you know, how these really open up over time. So we
2: had Bitcoin ETF. Do you expect other crypto spot ETFs to get approved? Yeah, so I think the next ETF that the market
6: is looking at right now is the Ethereum ETF. Um, And specifically within that, there's a perspective from some market participants that you could see an ETH ETF approved later this year. What I would say is, uh, in contrast to the Bitcoin ETF, that realistically through Q3 and Q4, the market consensus was this was likely to happen. The ETH ETF, there's not the same level of consensus right now. So I think what we'll see right now, we have some clients that anticipate this happening later this year. Others think it's a longer road ahead. I think that the market's still waiting to determine what ultimately happens here.
4: It looks like another catalyst potentially uh, that the SEC is seeking comments on a proposal to allow options trading on yeah. BlackRock's ETF. So, how do you see that one unfolding?
6: Yeah. So, I think one of the interesting elements in relation to the ETF approval itself is the potential to catalyze greater options market activity domestically in the United States. We've actually seen substantial options growth in our own business. Just for context, Q3 to Q4, FalconX's options business grew 10X quarter over quarter. And so currently one of the largest options market participants on the institutional side of the market. And if I look at why that matters, right? people are looking for different ways to express their views within this market, as well as to hedge their exposure. And over time, what you see as these options markets evolve around ETFs is actually greater liquidity going into those ETF instruments itself, and in the future, potentially a a lowering of volatility, right? So if you look at gold as an analogy, gold ETF options markets around those ETFs, what you saw is over time, that's a more liquid market, lower volatility within that market itself. And that actually attracts more capital over time because it's a more investable asset that
2: is less volatile. Largest crypto prime brokerage in the world, how do you define that? How do I define? Largest, like, is yeah. it- uh, Like by volume? Transaction or, volume, how does that, how does that yeah, work? Yeah,
6: so defined from a volume perspective there, okay. right? So like, like I mentioned, we're active um, both on spot markets, derivatives markets, and partnering with clients both in the US and globally.
2: So what are other, like who do you compete with for that market share?
6: Yeah, so look, if I look at the crypto market and where prime brokerage sits within uh, this ecosystem, you have different players that are providing different products and services across the board, right? It's not like traditional financial services where you can go to Goldman Sachs or J.B. Morgan and get basically most things that you need from an institutional market participation perspective. So where we're focused is trading spot and derivatives markets, the extension of credit and solving capital efficiency for our customers and providing technology to facilitate risk management. As it relates to competition, what you see is we compete with different players in each of those different segments those could be some of the proprietary trading firms in one. It could be uh, other trading market participants uh, in the other. But from my perspective, look, there's a huge market opportunity here. The question is how we grow this over time. I think uh, the ETF is a great catalyst, uh, and we're excited to continue to partner with you know wide variety of market participants to grow the pie.
4: So I know that you're working with institutional clients, but I got to ask on behalf of myself and maybe other you know retail participants who are maybe a little bit hesitant to get into crypto there's obviously I think since it began just been a lot of skepticism around the asset and obviously with FTX imploding like a lot of concerns about the viability of it so what's your pitch to somebody who's like you know not involved in crypto why they should?
6: Yeah. So I don't spend much time actually convincing people to be active within the crypto space. Probably because they already are with well, the people you deal with. a lot of people come to me, <laughs> right, they're actually active already. Yes. Um, but like, look, within that, if I think what's the value within crypto, right, and where's the value within Bitcoin and why are people excited about the ETF as an example here? What you're looking at is a non-sovereign stored of value that's digitally scarce and solving uh, what many refer to as a digital gold right why does that matter today right we're looking at a macroeconomic landscape of 70 plus elections globally, not just in the U.S. Within that, we didn't anticipate loosened monetary policy that could lead to inflation. Do you want to protect your assets against that? And then the other area that we see, uh, you know, our clients investing within crypto is some believe it could be a good geopolitical hedge over time. An increasingly uncertain geopolitical landscape, as you guys know. The question is, is a portion of your portfolio make sense to act uh, to allocate to this asset class. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, always recommend people look at all the risks and uh, corresponding volatility associated Read with the that. fine
4: print, I'm <laughs> <Exactly>. sure. <laughs>
2: Austin Reed, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Austin Reed, Global Head of Revenues and Business at Falcon X. Falcon X is the largest institutional crypto prime brokerage uh, in the world. And we're getting, all getting a lot smarter on
1: Crypto. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
2: Adam Coons joins us from Winthrop Capital here. Uh, we talked to Adam about the markets and so uh, so forth going forward. Adam, you know, we had that big, big September, I mean really kind of November, December last year that just ripped. Uh, Equities um, just went uh, through the roof. Bonds actually turned in positive performance for the year, you know. Um, What are you telling your clients here as we kind of start off another year? Do we just kind of start from zero and try to find some winners out there? What's the theme for you this year?
7: Yeah, I mean I think this year is gonna definitely be a a stock pickers year. Uh, I think fixed income will continue to be a a primary story for for returns and That's going to come despite what the Fed does, even if the Fed doesn't uh, lower rates as quickly as some are saying. And and we do believe that. We're thinking really fourth quarter before they they make any cuts at all. Wow, that's a ways off. Yeah, Yeah. so so we're we're a little bit divergent from the consensus. And that's really driven by, um, if you look at what the Fed has done through this cycle, they obviously got it wrong with the, the transitory nonsense. And we think they're going to act slow to do the same thing, right? They They were slow to raise rates, suddenly did it. We think they're going to be slow to to decrease interest rates because they don't want to be wrong again, right? They don't want to lower rates and then see another flash of of inflation. So I think that's really going to squeeze the economy. And uh, so that's going to be good for long term bonds. I think it's going to be somewhat uh, of a difficult year uh, for stocks. And that's driven by two things. One is what I just highlighted is you're going to start to see economic weakness. But secondly, I mean, coming to this year, you, you nailed it, is we had that rally coming into the end of the year that that really drove valuations to some somewhat unsustainable levels for specific companies. And I'm highlighting your Teslas, your Nvidias, and yep. obviously you're seeing the result of that with Tesla missing and, and dropping quite a bit.
4: So you're saying it's going to be a good year for long-term bonds. I'm looking at the 30-year right now. Yield peaked a little bit above 5%. In October, that's when the pivot story started to become a bit more clear, and now we're at 4.35. I think that's still attractive to get. I in do. At? I mean,
7: look, it's really asymmetric right now, bonds, which is the attractive part of it. The worst case scenario is you get a fairly high yield to carry until we start to see that, you know, the secular trend in rates is not change Mm -hmm. rates are going to go back down demographics and all those things are pushing that so worst case scenarios i get to hold bonds at a pretty high yield you know corporate bonds i'm getting five percent uh so i get to hold that until and wait until i'm right (laughs) and so ultimately i think that's the the easiest uh, like
2: I said, from a risk standpoint, asymmetric trade. You know, I was surprised, you know, looking at the performance in the fixed income last year in 2023, that the best performing sector was high yield. Yeah. And that's in a world where everybody kept talking about a recession. I would have would have thought going into the year that maybe high yield would not be the place to be, but it really outperformed. It did. I mean, and I think that goes hand in hand
7: with what the equity markets did, right? They they tend to correlate uh, in certain pockets of the market. And so I think when we saw that rally, that, that helped Tighten credit spreads. I mean, we really aren't seeing big increases in delinquencies. Yes, they're going up a little bit, um, but recovery rates are stable. Yep. So it's just, it, it, yeah, it was it was a place to be because credit markets still look pretty solid.
4: So in a year when rates are broadly going to be coming down, you think that's you know pretty accommodative for everybody. Is there really a place that you would say like you like would not benefit from that and to avoid? Um, well, I think. It,
7: it really comes down to well, commodities. I'd stay probably away from that in the in the short term, um, especially kind of the oil. Uh commodities. But if you're looking at stocks, I think, once again, I, I think you want to stay away from the narrative-based companies, uh, like I said, in NVIDIA, or where the AI narrative has really gotten out <laughs> oh, of Oh, we're the over end. it? Yeah. I, I've been really? over it for a while.
4: <laughs> I feel like it's just starting.
7: I think there's going to be a pause, right? And then, because uh, everyone's going to figure out, well, there's no monetization of this story of AI right now. So I think there'll be a little bit of a pause with that. Uh, you'll still see the companies like Microsoft and Alphabet that have an AI component, but have a real business model, those will still do, still do well. But the companies that, that really just kinda got over their skis last year, th- that's where I would stay away from right, right now.
2: So, big earnings week this week from a lot of the <clears throat> high profile names, including uh, Meta and Alphabetters, I call them, Facebook and Google. Um, why change a good thing, I don't know. Right. But um, in any case, um, I know there are names that you guys have an interest in. How do you think about Facebook, Google, that whole, I guess, digital advertising space?
7: Well, I think it comes down to, you know, once again, these are business models that have been able to adapt. Uh, Meta's gone through a a little bit of an identity crisis, but I think they're back on the right track where they're able to adapt to what the consumer behavior and those shifts are, we still think the consumer can kind of push this cycle out. And that's what's going to drive stocks like that, where advertising is really, you know, at the end of the day, that the revenue driver. So that's why we think those companies can outperform uh, relative to some of the, the hardware type companies.
4: All right. So those ones are the the communication slash tech sector. How about healthcare? It looks like that's one that you've got your eyes on, too.
7: It is. I mean, if you look at valuations and I keep saying that that word, it's obviously something that matters to the, this year. Um, a company like Merck, where you know it it is trading very attractively relative to uh, other companies in healthcare and then also just in the S and P five hundred, but you know it ran up significantly through COVID, obviously with their. With their uh, vaccine and then basically has given away all those gains so I, what we see here is a company that has a a, a nice amount of cash flow uh, yes the pipeline in the short term is a little bit questionable but we think that they can pull off an M&A strategy that will kind of help prop up uh, their pipeline in the future
4: I don't know I mean we just had our antitrust expert in here I wouldn't be trying to get into M&A right <laughs> that's now. fair
7: that is fair it's, it's hard but right it's, now
2: it still seems like you can get healthcare deals done because usually what it is is like a big still pharma like, company yeah. buying a little guy who's got some cool new thing coming. So maybe just not
4: in like healthcare, as far as like insurance, you know, obviously like the humana Cigna that didn't go so well. I mean, it it
2: is, does Merck have? It seems like if I'm going to have exposure to healthcare, it's got to have a GLP-1 angle, uh, an obesity drug. A I was going to say drug, they need angle. an Ozempic. Does Does Merck have that? <laughs> they don't. I mean, and I, I think and that Lilly
7: would be the play, my pick right. behind that. Yeah. Um, the valuation is is really what's given me pause there. But I, I would still own Lilly. I probably wouldn't add to it, or you know,
2: particularly in Indianapolis, dude. You right? have That's to own it. it. Yeah, I get yeah. it. Yeah, Eli Lily gotta based. love Lily. in Indianapolis because I know that because. A lot of my friends from business school went to Indianapolis begrudgingly, but they went there because it's Eli Lilly. Yep, you know that's the place. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so, but still, your highest conviction trade is that high grade, long duration so bond. Boring. So, so boring. I know. So, what's <laughs> I mean, like, like, what's a piece of paper that you guys hold that you feel really comfortable with? Um, I mean, I look,
7: I really do like tech, TMT. When you're looking yep. at corporate bonds, um, y- you can go out
2: there and it, are you it, buying like com- you own the Comcast and yes, absolutely. Comcast. Charter. Uh, I We're like Cox Communications. Yeah. yeah, I like Cox Communications. Yes. Yeah. I've them for like 30 years. Look at some Great Dell. Company. Yeah, I mean,
7: Oracle. Oracle is honest, honestly yeah. one of the cheapest. It's triple B, uh, but you're getting a lot of spread. Like so You're getting well north of 5% uh, for you know a well cash flow company. I just yeah, it,
2: it's a no brainer for me. Nice. Cox right. Communications. I, man, I made a lot of fees <laughs> off of those good people, yeah. smart people. They made your work for it, but uh, they paid and they paid on time. Adam Coons, thanks so much for joining Thank us. You. Adam Coons is a chief uh, portfolio manager for Winthrop Capital Management, located in
1: Indianapolis. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: You kind of think about... You know, twenty twenty three and the and the rip we had there at the end of the year. It's like almost I come into twenty twenty-four. Now what do I do? It seems like I might have gotten all my performance at the end of twenty-three. Uh, let's check in with Katerina Simonendi. She probably has some good views here. She's a senior vice president at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. So Katarina, what's kind of the message you started off, you know, 2024 uh with with your clients here after, you know, a
8: pretty good 2023. Uh Paul and Molly, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, yes, you know, surprisingly good end of uh, 2023, uh, where we investors seem to be so excited about the potential for the rate cuts. You know, we saw this, you know, pretty remarkable year end and also, you know, somewhat unusual was the fact that the 7 large stocks essentially carried the market so if you look at the performance that investors experienced in the some of the broad indexes like s p 500 for example you know there were two stories of the index there was a story of this magnificent seven stocks and then the rest of the market so when we look at 24 it definitely continues being the story of the fed and it is really the timeline of the rate cuts that we're looking at you know first and then of course the earnings because to, to some degree it is a little bit confusing for investors to figure out what they're hoping for are they hoping that rates are going to start coming down soon and we have significant doubts that the fed is going to start cutting in march or are they hoping for good earnings that for the stocks that they have in their portfolio, we think it's a little bit of both.
4: Well, let's let's delve into that timeline for the Fed rate cuts because I feel like you know you can ask five people and get 10 different answers on this of when the Fed cuts are going to start. We hear March the earliest, our previous guest said, you know, fourth quarter the earliest. So, where do you stand in all that, Katarina? What do you think?
8: Well, we think that March uh, is a bit aggressive and uh, in our view we expect that the rates cuts are going to start in June and of course economic data will be something that will have to support it so we're going to have to see some weakness because after all, all we can't forget that the rate cuts you know is it's economic stimulus you know this is what we do to stimulate the economy but the question of course also is would Fed be willing to do something preemptively you know if this week is a huge week we have earnings we have job uh, data We have the Fed uh, meeting that is coming up, and perhaps they give us some guidance as far as what they think on the timeline, you know, because if economy remains strong, you know, is it something that they're going to be willing to do? But in our view, it's, we expect less rate cuts that market is pricing in.
2: All right, Katerina, what are you telling your clients here in 2024 in terms of maybe stocks versus bonds? Uh, is a client specific or do you have a kind of a balanced approach you like
8: to take? What's your message? Well, our biggest message to clients right now is get out of cash. We ha- we tend cash, to have okay. a little bit of yes, get out of cash because we tend to have a little bit of a short term memory. And you know, when we think about it, it seems like we've been earning five percent on cash forever. But reality is that it hasn't even been a year. And our biggest conversations right now is extending the duration of fixed income portfolios, getting out of cash positioning both in high quality equity, not necessarily the stocks that have done so well in the previous year, but maybe taking some profits there, but making sure that we have a nice high quality, well-balanced portfolios on the equity side, you know, we like healthcare, we like industrials, so we see opportunities in financials, but on the fixed income side, even more importantly, we're looking at extending the duration and the quality because this is this remarkable opportunity of picking up some of these high quality bonds and enjoying that 5% yield for longer.
4: Is there a lot of that out there? I mean, especially looking at corporate issuance, like you're seeing much in that longer duration Tenor.
8: Well, Molly, there is longer duration, but there's also intermediate. And when we're looking really about, you know, that message of getting out of cash, you know, even getting a CD that is few years out, you know, looking at some corporate bonds, investment grade corporate bonds, you know, just kind of trying to get as much of that yield as possible. We might not be able to get that yield going out 15, 20 years, but we, when we look five years out, seven years out, you know, this is really something that is still out there, absolutely.
2: So on the equity side of the equation here, um, are there some sectors that you and your team like right here that you're trying to convey to your
8: clients? Well, well the first message is, of course, you know, trying to again, you know, getting away from the the, the tech names that. Uh, that did so well, right? And it's the hardest thing to do, to know when to take a profit and to reallocate, you know, to the areas that maybe have not done well, but are positioned, in our opinion, better. And when we look historically, usually, you know, after the rate cuts, large cap is this sector, you know, that usually just performs better immediately, but small and mid cap stocks, you know, are not that far after. And in our view, with the, potential for rate cuts, but also with some of the geopolitical concerns that we are dealing with, especially, you know, some of the news that came out over the weekend, as example, you know, we really are, our return expectations for this year, the risk reward are kind of low. You know, we are setting expectations to the clients that this is going to be the year where we position, where we get those quality positions to make sure that our portfolios are well diversified. We do like healthcare, We like industrials. We like financials. You know, they we like just generally dividend paying stocks as this core building block of the portfolios. But we're also setting timeline expectations that this is the positioning that is going to be more for 25 and even 26 after the rate cuts, after that stimulus hits the market, you know, when there is another wave of growth that clients will be able to enjoy. So Paul is a huge fan
4: of the Russell 2000, <laughs> and I know it is a burning question for him. Is there a magnificent seven of the Russell 2000?
8: Uh, that's, you know, how many sevens would it take to really make an impact, you know, in the index that has 2000 stocks, you know, that's, that's the question. So I think that that the answer there is, is just broad index versus stock picking. And in our view, this is very much the year for the stock picking where valuations and earnings and competitive positioning of these individual names of the individual stocks will make all the difference in the world for the, the investment portfolios, for that alpha, that excess return above the market. And we actually would encourage investors to, you know, some would take profits and decrease their positions in the broad indexes that benefited from some of the stocks that, um, you know, performed well last year. Uh,
2: Katerina, one last question, about 30 seconds. What do you do with alternative investments? How do you kind of position them for your clients?
8: We... Think alternative investments, you know, as far as diversifier or even return uh, amplifier play essential role in the portfolio where appropriate, you know, it's just really takes time to get educated in that space. But we think that at least 10-15% of the portfolio, you know, could really benefit from some alternative exposure.
2: Katerina, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as always, Katarina Simonetti. She is a senior vice president of Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Joining us to give us her thoughts on these markets.
1: This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg. Germany.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QB.